On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel, Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. You'll remain standing, take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3 as our children are being dismissed. Ephesians chapter 3. as we continue our study through this amazing book. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 13 this morning. If you'll follow along as I read now, beginning in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, or when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. In the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul has expounded some deep, rich theological truth, to say say the very least. In chapter 1, he laid out the blessings that come to believers through the three persons of the Trinity. God the Father chose us before creation to be adopted as sons. God the Son redeemed us. He came into the world and died on the cross for our sins. And God the Spirit sealed us individually to God through faith. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul prayed to God that we might know the hope to which God has called us, the riches of our inheritance as His people, and the resurrection power available to us in Christ, who now reigns in heaven for our sakes. That was just chapter 1. And in chapter 2, Paul gives a practical example of how that resurrection power is at work in the life of the believer. And it's, it's a reminder to believers of God's great work of salvation. 
In chapter 2, Paul reminded us that we were dead in, in trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ, that salvation is a gift of God's grace received through faith alone, and that it always results in a life of good works. For we are now God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then in the second half of chapter 2, Paul said that his Gentile readers were at one time separated from Christ, without God and without hope in the world, but they were brought near by the blood of Christ. And Christ has given us peace with God. Christians are a new humanity, a new corporate entity, the church in which believing Jews and Gentiles are are made one in Christ and through Him they have access in one spirit to the Father. And then Paul illustrated this new corporate entity, the church, using three word pictures. He said, believing Gentiles are fellow citizens of God's kingdom, members together in God's household, and a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that brings us to our text, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And these verses are uh, largely a parenthesis that runs from verse 2 through verse 13. In verse 1 of chapter 13, in light of what he just said about the inclusion of Gentiles, Paul begins an intercessory prayer specifically for his readers as Gentiles that they will understand the vastness of the love that God has shown for them in Christ. But as soon as he writes, for this reason I, he immediately stops his prayer. And he decides to go over again some of those truths which prompted it, emphasizing their divine source. And then repeating the phrase, for this reason I, he will resume his prayer later in verse 14, and that prayer will run through verse 22 and the end of the chapter. But verses 1 through 13 deal, this parenthesis deals with Paul's stewardship of the mystery. And these verses break down this way. Verse 1 speaks of Paul's imprisonment for the sake of the Gentiles. In verses 2 to 7, we have Paul's stewardship of, of the mystery God revealed to him. In verses 8 to 12, how Paul accomplishes his God-given task. And then in verse 13, we have Paul's concern for his readers. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Uh, Paul's imprisonment in verse 1 and Paul's stewardship of the mystery God revealed to him in verses 2 to 7. So let's begin now in verse 1. And this is what we read. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So he begins chapter 3 by saying, for this reason, which introduces the cause of his prayer and refers back to what he has just said about God's grace in bringing together Gentile and Jew into one new entity, the church, and and making them a dwelling for for himself. So for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. That's what Paul was planning to say. And that's verse 14. But here in verse 1, as he began to think about praying for the Gentiles and and all of the glorious truths he had just taught, Paul stops. And he's going to reemphasize and expand on on some of those truths. So Paul doesn't pray. Instead, the very first thing he does is to make this remarkable statement that shows us his state of mind in his prison in Rome. You know, in the opening of the letter, Paul 
gives his credentials as an apostle of Christ Jesus, but here he describes himself not as an apostle, but rather as a prisoner. A prisoner. And this is the first time in his letter that Paul explicitly tells us he is in prison. He will go on to say in chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. And then in chapter 6, verse 20, I am an ambassador in chains. And this, of course, was literally true. Because Paul was writing from his confinement in Rome where he was under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier during his first Roman imprisonment. And this reminds us of something that is true about the book of Ephesians as well as the other books of the Bible. I mean, this is not some dry academic treatise. Rather, it is a pastoral letter written by a real flesh and blood man who was compelled to suffer for the gospel and for the salvation of his readers. And so Paul says he is a prisoner. But looking back at the verse, you'll notice Paul does not say he is a prisoner of Rome or of the emperor Nero, which humanly speaking he was. But he didn't believe he was in jail because of Nero. Paul knew that, or Paul saw that, or knew that Nero was not the one who had the final say about him. Jesus did. The duration of his confinement was not determined by Nero, but by the Lord Jesus. And as Paul came to understand the, to understand the one whom he served, he knew that, that Jesus was in control of history. And he saw Jesus, as John did in the book of Revelation, you know, sitting on his throne, holding the reins of government in his hands. Paul understood that Christ is the one who opens and and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens, who, who orders and his will is carried out. Paul knew, therefore, that any time the Lord Jesus decided his imprisonment would be of no further value, he'd be set free. He knew that when the Lord Jesus spoke, Nero acted. Therefore, he never saw himself as being the prisoner of Nero. And there's a tremendous lesson right here for us. Because sometimes we become worried and and anxious about what the political powers that, that be are doing in the world today. When what we should do is have the faith of the Apostle Paul who understood so clearly that Nero was not in control. Nero didn't have the last word. The Lord Jesus Christ. Paul didn't say, I'm in in prison, I'm a prisoner of Rome or of Nero. He also could have said, I'm I'm in jail because of the opposition of the the Jewish people. They were the ones that rioted when he went to the temple. Uh, Since that was the cause of him being taken into custody, he, he very well could have said, I'm in prison because of the Jewish people, but he didn't say that. He knew he was not in prison because of the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities. He knew ultimately he was in prison because of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to wonder what the Roman guards who were chained to Paul must have thought when when they heard Paul dictate these words to his amanuensis or his secretary claiming to be a, a prisoner, not of Jews, not of Romans, not of Nero, but of Jesus. I wonder what they thought. You see, Paul was so convinced that the whole of his life, including his imprisonment, was under the sovereign lordship of Christ, that he could say with all confidence that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Just as he was Christ's servant, apostle, and minister, so 
He was Christ's prisoner. And it's interesting that Paul, who now was in prison for his faith in Christ, was once the man who put so many others in prison for that same faith. And the book of Acts tells us that Saul was ravaging the church and, and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. And you know the story. He was traveling to Damascus to do the same there. But on the way, the risen, glorified, exalted Christ appeared to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And there on the road to Damascus, Christ converted him, changed his name to Paul, and sent him into Damascus to prepare for his ministry as an apostle. And Jesus then told Ananias, a believer in Damascus, to go help Paul. And he said to Ananias, I will show him, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's why Paul was in prison. He was in prison for Jesus' sake. He was in prison for the sake of the gospel. And Paul continues by saying that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And this refers not only to the fact that his arrest had come about because he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, but also to the fact that it benefited the Gentiles. He wanted these Ephesians to know that they were benefiting by his arrest. And I think this is a hint that he recognized that if it were not for the fact that he had been made a prisoner, he never would have had the time to write these letters which have changed the course of history. In Philippians, another letter written during this same time period, Paul said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I mean, Paul knew that he was in prison because of the cause of the gospel. And because of the cause of the gospel would best be served by him being there. And perhaps Jesus kept Paul a prisoner for, for that amount of time so that he would have time to write these letters, these glorious inspired letters which have been to the blessing of the church for the last 2,000 years. That means this letter of Ephesians the letter to the Philippians, Colossians, and to Philemon, and then during his second imprisonment, First and Second Timothy and Titus, all of these came from the solitude of prison. You see, God knew that a small congregation of Gentiles in distant Redding, California, in the United States, almost 2,000 years later, would need to read these very words. Why? for help on their journey, for wisdom and, and deepening hunger for holiness and practical counsel for marriage, child raising, and the Christian battle. I mean, this letter would be indispensable to the Gentiles. And God loved them, and so Paul was put in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. He was not in prison because of sin. He was not in prison because God was punishing him or paying him back for all the bad things he had done. He was in prison for Christ's saving purpose, which was to fulfill his divine commission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so the Gentile readers of this letter, which would include all of us, we owe our salvation to the Apostle Paul's obedient fulfillment of his apostolic call. And so here's Paul. He's in prison, in chains, but his care and concern was not for himself. 
There's not a hint of self-pity or complaint on him on his part. There's no trace of resentment whatsoever. Because it was not his circumstances that dominated his thoughts. Because Paul had handed himself over completely to Christ to be used for the salvation of others. And so he willingly suffered being imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And you know, one of the problems with much of the church today is its unwillingness to suffer. The church wants its best life now. And therefore is not willing to suffer for Christ to say nothing of others. And so many Christians are unwilling even to risk mild social discomfort, whereas Paul was willing to be chained in prison for the salvation of others. But the fact of the matter is, just as Paul suffered prison for, for the gospel, as Christians, I mean, we can and should expect hardship as a part of our gospel witness. I mean, faithfulness has a cost. And every true servant will bear the cost. I mean, there will be suffering in, in the life of every true believer. I mean, Jesus told us that there would. I mean, sometimes it means being considered weird or, or different because of our views or beliefs. Sometimes it results in physical suffering. But whatever it may be, faithful servants will experience some form of suffering. But Jesus promises those who do blessings. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In verse 1, Paul said he was a prisoner for Christ Jesus and on behalf of you Gentiles. But verse 13 shows that Paul was concerned that his arrest might discourage the Ephesians and cause some to doubt God's care. And so verses 2-7, to seven, which speak of Paul's stewardship of the mystery God revealed to him, are here because of his love and concern for his flock, because what happens to one Christian has such an impact on all. Verse 2 elaborates on Paul's statement in verse 1 that he was a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. Look at verse 2. He says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, for you. Now, why did Paul say, assuming you have heard? It seems a little strange he would say that in light of the fact that he spent three years in Ephesus teaching there night and day. So why did he say, assuming you have heard? Well, one explanation may be that many Gentiles have become Christians in the years since he was there, and they only knew of Paul through what they had heard from the believers, the first generation believers who became Christian, uh, Christians under Paul's ministry. Or, could be that Paul is thinking and writing as a pastor. And he knows how easily and quickly in the church truth can be forgotten. And so he reminds them of his stewardship of God's grace and perhaps is gently chiding them in the process. Or it could simply mean that it's assumed to be true. In fact, Phillips paraphrases it, for you must have heard. In other words, surely they, they, they knew of the ministry that had been committed to Paul. In other words, Paul may be simply saying, as I am sure you have already heard. But whatever the case may be, 
Paul says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. We notice that the first thing that Paul points out is that his ministry was God's provision for the salvation of the Gentiles. He writes of the stewardship of God's grace given to, me, given to him for them, for the Gentiles. And this word translated stewardship often has the meaning of administration or plan, a plan that involves uh, a set of arrangements. And the same word is used in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul writes that God has a plan for the fullness of time. And so Paul is saying that the reason these Gentiles were saved was because God had a plan for them to hear and believe the gospel. And Paul was a key part of that plan, as Jesus made clear on the road to Damascus when he saved and called him to be an apostle, especially to the Gentiles. The word also means stewardship. A steward. You know, a steward was a servant who had been entrusted with the care and oversight of his master's estate. And his stewardship of the estate was a huge privilege and great responsibility, one that he would be held accountable for. He would be held accountable for his faithfulness in in managing the master's assets. And stewardship certainly describes Paul's role in God's plan for the Gentiles. God had given him the great responsibility to preach the gospel, especially to Gentiles. And Paul knew that he was going to be held accountable for his stewardship. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, he wrote, it is required of stewards that they be found, what? Faithful. Faithful. And Paul says of his stewardship that it is, notice, the stewardship of God's grace. Grace, of course, speaks of God's undeserved, unmerited favor given to those who deserve absolutely nothing but condemnation. I mean, we are sinners and and could never save ourselves, but God loves us and saves us by the free gift of Jesus Christ received by grace through faith alone. Paul's point here is that the ministry is itself a gift of God's grace. Paul didn't choose his apostleship or his ministry. I mean, he had been a violent man, bent on destruction and and driven by hatred. But by grace alone, Christ called him, converted him, gave him the gospel, and then sent him forth into the world with the power to preach. Paul was chosen and commissioned purely by God's grace. He was appointed a steward by God's grace, but then he became a steward of God's grace. Paul's message was one of grace. And his great sense of privilege and and wonder about all of this comes through in verse 7 where he says, of this gospel I was made a minister to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of His power. Paul's stewardship by grace and, and of God's grace meant grace for the Gentiles. Because they were without Christ and therefore without hope and without God in the world. And so how utterly amazing that from eternity past, God had a plan for their salvation, just as He does for people today to be rescued from sin, to be redeemed and and forgiven, and to live in His presence in glory forever. And it's all about grace. And you know what? 
According to Jesus, all believers are stewards of God's grace. And God has a plan for the salvation of people in our world, just as in Paul's, and each one of us are a part of that plan. You may be asking, well, why do you say that? Well, because God has given all of us the gospel. And the Holy Spirit has given each of us particular spiritual gifts of which we are to be good stewards. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 2. The stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. This is God's way of ministry and of spreading the gospel. You see, what God gives to us is for others. And we are called to share the gospel and to use the gifts and abilities God has given us to minister to others, especially for their salvation. As one commentator wrote, every believer is a steward of the calling, spiritual gifts, opportunities, skills, knowledge, and every other blessing he has from the Lord. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. Therefore, we are entrusted as stewards to manage our lives and everything we possess in behalf of the one to whom they belong. And we are faithful stewards when we use what we have to minister to those within the family of God and witness to those who are without. He's, he's exactly right. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, the Apostle Peter admonishes us saying, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied or God's manifold grace. We all have different gifts from the Lord and in different measure. And what matters is our faithfulness. Our faithfulness to the stewardship that we are given. And whatever ministry God has given each of us, and we, and we all have the gospel to share along with particular gifts and opportunities to serve. So whatever it is God has given to us, all of it is of God's grace. It's all of God's grace to us. And so my question to you is, is there any better way to live than as a servant and a vessel of God's grace given to us for others? Is there any better way to live? Is there any more fulfilling life? And now in verses 3-5, to Paul elaborates on his statement in verse 2 about his stewardship from God. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, verse 2, now verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. And so Paul now explains the source and, and nature of this stewardship that God has entrusted to him. It was not insight or a plan that Paul himself had conceived in his own mind. It was not the product of his own study. I mean, no amount of exegetical study of the Scriptures would have yielded this insight. Nor was it given to him through any human instruction. It was made known to me, Paul says, by revelation. In other words, it came directly to him by revelation from God. And the language Paul uses here is the same as he used in Galatians 1.12 where speaking of the Gospel, he said, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in Galatians 1.16, uh, describing his experience on the road to Damascus where God 
he used it describing uh, his experience on the road to Damascus where God revealed his son to Paul so that he might proclaim him among the Gentiles. And you'll notice that Paul describes the revelation God made known to him as the mystery. The mystery. The term mystery is used a number of times, approximately 24 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it six times in the book of Ephesians. And the word mystery, as Paul uses it, does not refer to uh, things mystical or mysterious. It does not refer to secret teachings, rites, or ceremonies revealed to some elite group or cult which claim to have more divine enlightenment. I mean, in the New Testament times, there, there were many pagan mystery religions who used the term mystery in this way, and there were false teachers in the early church who also used the term in this way. But the word mystery as it is used in the New Testament refers to truth that was previously unknown and unknowable apart from divine revelation, but has now been revealed in the New Testament. And Paul said this mystery was made known to him by revelation, as he says, I have written briefly. So he's saying he's already mentioned it. Most likely, he's referring to what he said in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, and perhaps chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, where he touched on the subject of the church as Christ's body, including Jews and Gentiles. And obviously, we know the, the mystery is that of Jew and Gentile being one in Christ. But it was unknowable, incomprehensible truth hidden from all men until God chose to reveal it. And in verse 4, Paul assures his readers of their ability to understand the mystery. Look at verse 4. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And Paul's sincere desire was for his readers and hearers to perceive, that is, to comprehend and understand the importance of the insight, which means the understanding God had given to Paul of the mystery of Christ. And when Paul speaks of reading, it's easy for us as Christians today to think of our own experience of you know, sitting down and opening up our Bible and having a quiet time. But what we must keep in mind is that because of the expense of hiring a scribe and, and purchasing papers, there were likely very few copies of Paul's letter or any other scriptures in the churches at that time. And not only that, there was a large percentage of the people in the Roman world who were illiterate. And so when Paul says, when you read this, it almost certainly refers to the public reading of the letter during worship when the various communities of believers gathered together on the Lord's day. The public reading of scriptures as well as apostolic letters undoubtedly played an important role in the lives of the early Christian churches. And Paul says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. And as a result, he says in verse 4, he had insight into the mystery of Christ. And so God's revelation gave Paul insight into the gospel. And he then wrote it down so that others would know what, what God had revealed to him. 
And so he says, when you read this, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And this is vital. This is vital since it is what Paul has written that gives us access to God's revelation today. It's by reading Paul's letter and letters as with the other books of the Bible that we can receive and grasp the truth that was revealed to him by God. And it's because of this that Martin Luther could say, let the man who would hear God speak, read Holy Scripture. And as someone else said, if you want to hear God speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. You see, God's purpose is that we would have insight, understanding of His own thoughts, plans, and purposes. And where do we find this? In the written Word of God. And so what a great blessing it is to have God's Word. And though we don't always look at it this way, we should. I mean, the Bible is nothing short of a great treasure. And in other places of the world, they absolutely treasure the Word of God. And with regard to the greatness of this treasure, one commentator said, the greatness of this treasure is reflected in the coronation service for a king or queen of England. Part of the ritual is for the moderator of the Church of Scotland to present the new monarch with the Bible saying, the most precious thing this world affords, the most precious thing that the world knows, God's living word. And would to God we all viewed his word in that way. And so Paul insists that when the Ephesians read his letter, and, and many of them must have been quite uneducated, they could perceive his insight into the mystery of Christ. And, and of course, the same is true for you and me, and therefore we are to be good students of God's word. Reading, and studying it for ourselves, but that's not sufficient. We must also, when we gather for worship, hear the Word of God read and, and hear the Word of God preached, asking the Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear and, and give us a mind to understand and grasp the truth, and then to give us a heart to obey so that we are not merely hearers of the Word and not doers. And now in verses 5 and 6, Paul actually reveals the mystery. He defines the mystery in, in verse 5. Verse 4 says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Then he says, Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so Paul says the mystery of Christ was not made known. It is a truth that was previously unknown and unknowable, to the sons of men in other generations. And sons of men refers to mankind in general, not just to God's chosen people, Israel. And so what Paul is telling us is that before the church age, no person, not even the greatest Old Testament prophets, had anything but a veiled glimpse of the truth that Paul now discloses. Though they understood much, 
Though they looked into the future far beyond our own day, and God showed them what, what the end of all things would be, nevertheless, they did not understand this mystery which was hidden from men in past ages. As one commentator wrote, the Old Testament teachings that relate to this mystery can only be understood clearly in light of New Testament revelation. We know the meaning of many Old Testament passages only because they are explained in the New. No one knew the full meaning of God's promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Until Paul wrote in Galatians 3.8, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. No one knew the full meaning of Isaiah the prophet's prediction, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth until Paul explained that it meant the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be offered to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. There in Acts 13. None of the Old Testament prophets and saints had any concept of the church, the the gathering together of all the saved into one new entity, one body in which there were absolutely no racial distinction. They had clues. But the faint clues they had in the Old Testament were nothing but a mystery to them because there was so much information that they were lacking. And that is why Jews in the early church, even the Apostle Peter, had such a difficult time accepting the fact that Gentile believers were completely on the same spiritual level as Jews. And that is why Paul was so concerned in this letter to the Ephesians to make sure that they understood that great truth. So in this verse, Paul makes clear that the mystery of Christ was not something previously known to the sons of men in other generations As he says, it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It was previously unknowable apart from divine revelation, but God has now, Paul says, revealed the mystery to his holy apostles and prophets. They're called holy because of their special consecration and unique calling as the recipients of God's divine revelation. And so this tells us that Paul was not the only one to receive this revelation into the mystery of God's plan of redeeming the Gentiles. But God had preeminently revealed it to Paul uh, as he had written briefly in the previous chapter because Paul was set apart as the apostle to the Gentiles. But God also revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. Now, who are these holy apostles and prophets? The same apostles and New Testament prophets spoken of in chapter 2, verse 20, who laid the church's foundation. And Paul says this mystery has been revealed to them, how? By the Spirit, or by means of the Spirit. And this tells us how the revelation of God's Word actually happened. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21 tells us that Or Peter tells us that knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And by prophecy, Peter means the whole of the Bible's revelation. 
And he says it doesn't originate in the will of men as if it were their own ideas. It was men who spoke and wrote, but it was the Holy Spirit moving them so that God was revealing His own Word through them. And the true author of the Bible, therefore, is the Holy Spirit through whom men like Paul wrote God's Word. And this is what is meant by the inspiration of Scripture. Not that the writers were inspired in themselves, but that the Holy Spirit worked in them and through them to speak from God. And now in verse 6, Paul discloses exactly what this mystery God has revealed is. Look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. So Paul reveals at the heart of the mystery, the heart of the mystery God has revealed is the fact that Gentiles now share equally with Jews in all the blessings of the salvation that God has provided in Christ through the Gospel. And we cannot even begin to imagine how incredibly revolutionary that truth was to the Jews of Paul's day. One commentator said it this way. He said, in spite of the fact that the Old Testament teaches that Gentiles will be blessed by God, that Gentiles will bless God, that the Messiah will come to the Gentiles, that they will be saved by the Messiah, and that they will receive the Holy Spirit, the idea of including Gentiles in one body with the Jews was the spiritual equivalent of saying that lepers were to mingle, or no longer to be isolated, that they were perfectly free to intermingle and associate with everyone else as normal members of society. In the minds of most Jews, their spiritual separation from Gentiles was so absolute and so right that the thought of total equality before God was inconceivable and little short of blasphemy. And so for us, you know, here some 2,000 years later, it's hard for us to comprehend just how radical and deep the division was between Jew and Gentile. But in Christ Jesus, this division and all other human divisions was obliterated. In Christ, as Paul tells the churches in Galatia, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And of course, the point is not that we stop being Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, black and white, rich and poor, Uh, or whatever, it is that these cultural, social, racial, sexual divisions no longer divide or distinguish our our essential identity. Because in Christ Jesus, we are all one. And look back at the verse and at what Paul says. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. And so Paul declares that first of all, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Those who were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise now have exactly the same legal status before God as as His chosen people, the Jews. They have the same glorious inheritance in Christ. Paul has already mentioned that in chapter 1. Every believer is blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
As Paul told the Galatians, regardless of your racial or, or other heritage, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the Gentiles are no longer aliens or strangers, but sons having the same legal status as all other believers. And second, he says, Gentiles are also now members of the same body. Gentile believers have been incorporated into the same body and have become one new man or or one body. Together, both Jews and Gentiles forming the body of Christ, the church. And the Gentiles are full members of the body. And Jews and Gentiles are linked by a, a common faith and life with every other person in God's family. They are fellow members, indistinguishable in God's eyes from any other member. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all are made to drink of one spirit. And third, Paul says they are partakers of the promise. This is really probably a summary of of, of the two. Because promise probably is used here in its widest sense to include all Christian blessing. In other words, Paul is saying that that they are equal sharers of all the blessings provided in salvation. Blessings such as regeneration, membership in the body of Christ, and, and participation in the messianic kingdom to come. I mean, all these blessings and many more belong equally to every member of the body of Christ. There's no favored children. No special children. All the blessings of salvation belong equally to every member of the body of Christ. And so Paul declares that Gentile and Jewish Christians together are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. And you'll notice that these shared privileges are found in Christ Jesus and through the Gospel. It is the Gospel alone that builds Christ's church and it is the Gospel alone that brings this kind of true oneness and spiritual unity. A spiritual unity that is to be protected. And this foundational Gospel truth must transform how we think and and behave as Christians. You see, the one place under heaven where racism, social snobbery, Cliques, elitism, factions, and all forms of sexism should never be found within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never. And this is why the message of the cross must always be at the heart of the church's ministry and life. Because you see, it's when, it's when the church drifts from the message of the cross that self rears its ugly head in in any number of of self-promoting ways, magnifying differences of ethnicity, education, social status, and, and much more. But you see, loved ones, the church of Jesus Christ is called to display to a fallen world the transforming power of the Gospel. A power that humbles us before God and and unites us to fellow redeemed sinners in the body of Christ. And loved ones, make no mistake about it, that is exactly what we all are. 
We are just fellow redeemed sinners, none better than the other, none above the other. We are all fully equal before God our Father, and we all share equally in all the blessings of our salvation. And now in verse 7, Paul reiterates his role as a servant of the mystery. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. This verse is, is transitional, and it's bringing the discussion concerning the content of the mystery to a conclusion while introducing Paul's role as God's divinely commissioned minister of the gospel. In verse 2, Paul spoke of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, and here he says that he is a minister according to the gift of God's grace. You see, being an apostle was not Paul's career choice. No, he says he was made a minister by grace. And when he says that he was made a minister, it's a passive verb, which means that it isn't something that Paul chose. Paul was acted upon. It isn't something he did. He was acted upon. God acted upon Paul. On the day of Paul's conversion, the Lord told Paul, get up, go on into Damascus, and there you're going to be told all that has been appointed for you to do. He was called and commissioned by Christ. And the word minister that he uses here, this, this, is, this is not some kind of stained glass word re, referring to a member of the clergy. Because that concept is totally foreign to the New Testament. Rather, it is the Greek word diakonos, which means nothing more than a servant. A servant. It referred to someone who waited on tables. A servant. And as a servant, Paul was to obey his master. He wasn't free to do his own thing, come and go as he pleased. No, he was free only to do what his master had commanded. And he was constrained by his heavenly calling to give himself heart, soul, mind, and strength to making the gospel of Christ known. Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And this phrase should probably be understood as the gift which is God's grace. That is, the gift is the grace that Paul received. And Paul described himself not as a hero, not as a great man of God. I love what Paul Washer said, there are no great men of God. He said, because we are all nothing more than weak, frail, sinful men in the service of a great and mighty God. So Paul didn't describe himself as a hero, not, not as a great man of God. No, he described himself as what he knew that he was, a servant. A servant who was merely the recipient of God's grace. And loved ones, it's no different for us. We are merely servants. Actually, the word... Uh, that's used most often in the New Testament for Christians is slave. 
We are merely the slaves of a loving, gracious, merciful God. Slaves, recipients of God's grace. And finally, Paul says that this grace was given to him by the working of his, that is God's power. You know, Paul never tired of of tracing all his privileges in Christ back to the grace of God. And the experience of the sovereign, undeserved grace and mercy of God uh, never produced complacency, far less laziness in Paul's life. Rather, as one man said, it stirred Paul to give himself in glad surrender to the Lord's surface. And then he said, where such glad surrender is absent, the grace of God in Christ can hardly be present. And Paul is overwhelmed by the privilege God had given to him. Paul is overwhelmed that that he could be a servant of God. That God would love him and save him. I mean, he never got over that fact. In Galatians 2.20, he said, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And then he said, who loved me. Not loves me, but loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, Paul never could get over the fact that Christ would love him enough to die for him. And then that he would save Paul and by his grace make him a minister of the gospel. And Paul understood what a, what a great and glorious privilege it is to be a servant, a slave of Christ. And to live full on for Him. He was just overwhelmed by the privilege that God had given to him. And that's why he says in verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And Paul is not engaging in hyperbole. It's not some kind of false humility. He truly believed that he was less than the least of all the saints. But Lord willing, we'll get to that when we look at verses 8 to 13 next week. There was an exclusive mystery in eternity past in the fellowship of the Trinity. And the angels and the Old Testament prophets and saints longed to look into it. They longed to understand it. They searched intently. But it was unknowable. They didn't have enough facts. It was, it was veiled. They, they didn't have a clue. Or they had some clues, but it was murky. Let's put it that way. At best. But then God sent Christ into the world and began to unfold that plan. And then God began to reveal His plan. 
He revealed it to Paul preeminently as the apostle to the Gentiles, and he revealed it to the other apostles and prophets who proclaimed it and then wrote it down so that we have it today. And we are among the most privileged people in all of the world. to have had this mystery revealed to us and to be able to comprehend this glorious truth. And then to be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, to be adopted into his family. We have no idea. We have no idea what a great privilege and how greatly blessed we are. We are blessed, Lord God. The most privileged people on the face of the earth. And may we not keep this great and glorious, or these great and glorious truths to ourselves. We're not called to do that. Rather, we are called to be good stewards of the gospel and of everything else that God has given us. And to use them first and foremost, not for ourselves, but for His glory. For the benefit of others and for the salvation of the lost. And so may we be found faithful stewards of all the, the blessings and privileges that God has given to us in Christ, through the gospel. Let's stand. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel Reading, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love.